Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hubert Hercotch survives upset alert. FAA does not. It is tales from the booth day one and day two. I'm calling matches throughout week one of Roland Garros 2023 on Tennis Channel Plus. So instead of my normal coverage, I will be checking in every day telling you about the specific matches that I called and other observations I've had uh, from the tournament each and every day. Again, day one and day two. Normally it's going to be one day for one video, but I did my mailbag yesterday, so I didn't do Tales from the Booth. If you didn't watch my mailbag, please do. I thought it was a really good one because of all of the great questions that you guys got to ask me. First match, day one, opening up court Simone Mathieu was Hubert Hercotch versus David Goffin. I thought the big headline here was Hercotch actually having a good forehand day. What happened here, strangely enough, is his weapon, Hercotch's big weapon, his first serve, wasn't very good. And his weakness, his forehand, was a lot better than usual. And when the match was all said and done, and it was a five-setter, it was really entertaining, really high quality, great crowd that every, they were all rooting for, for Gafan, uh, but really great crowd. When the match was over, I looked at it and I said, huh, Hercotch really didn't serve well from start to finish, which is rare. Uh, he just wasn't making first serves. And normally that might be true for one set, maybe two sets, but in a five-set match for a server as good as Hercotch, it's exceedingly rare that over the course of all five sets, the serve really never clicks. And that was the case in this match. And he's playing Gafan on clay. Now look, David has struggled this year, no doubt about it, but I thought he was motivated, brought a pretty good level. So Hercotch on a bad serving day against Goffin on clay, you would think coming into that match, Hubie's not going to win that match. If he doesn't serve well in that head-to-head -head on this surface, he's going to lose that match. And he was able to win it because his forehand actually performed. I thought he, you know, accelerated on it throughout, never really lost confidence. Now, look, there were spurts, there were small segments where it went off on him, maybe for a couple of points in a row. Uh, you know, it, it might have cost him in spots. Uh, certainly from the baseline, I thought there were large portions of the match where Hercotch looked uh, underpowered, where, you know, it's striking because Goffin's about 5'11". 
but he hits much bigger from the baseline than six foot five Hubert Hurkacz. And I'm sure he weighs a lot less. So there were times in the match where that really stood out. And it's like, wow, how, you know, how, how does this six foot five guy have so much less power than the five foot 11 guy? But it's the case. Uh, but all that aside, for the most part, uh, the forehand was just good enough to get it done. And in the fifth set, especially, I thought Hercotch played played awesome. Uh, the game that he broke serve in the fifth set, uh, he went pretty unplayable. He really did. And he, he even hit some some great forehands in that game. So I thought Hercotch was willing to be offensive with his forehand. He was accelerating. Uh, he was confident. You know, he never had really those kind of yips. So that surprised me. And I thought it was a really, really good win for Hubie. That match went so long that I only did the first set of Layla Fernandez versus Magdalenette. Uh, I didn't really see the, the next two sets of that match. But Fernandez won the first set. Uh, had a really tough time with her ball toss. And as a result, was really struggling with her second serve. Simply dominated in every other aspect, though. If there's only one part of your game that's really failing you, and you're just going to crush everywhere else, you still obviously have a really good chance to win. And that's what happened in the first set with Fernandez here. I thought Lynette, who's a, a very aggressive player, was playing a lot safer than usual. I don't know if she felt like Fernandez uh, didn't really have the power to, to hit through her on a slow clay court. But Layla did. Uh, Fernandez was doing a really good job of creating off of her forehand. Look, she doesn't have that much raw power on it, but she changes direction well. And from the middle of the court, she creates really good cross-court angles on it. Thought the forehand performed very well. And she's also a very good net rusher, which she, she can use at times. She's getting more confident on her volleys because she's been playing so much doubles this year. Uh, so Lynette's kind of defensive style... It wasn't really paying dividends. She was very consistent, but she wasn't doing nearly as much. She wasn't hitting the ball with as much pace as I'm used to seeing her hit the ball. And she wasn't really hitting into corners. Uh, she was hitting into much bigger targets than I'm used to seeing her uh, hit the ball. It did not pay off for Lynette in the first set. She won the second, but Fernandez won the third. Huge win for Fernandez because of the rankings implications. Uh, defending quarterfinalist. Layla is 49 in the world. She would have dropped, uh, by my math, around 90 in the world had she lost. And that's a very important drop because that takes you, you know, almost out of the Masters 1000 uh, direct entry range. In fact, I think it does take you out of Masters 1000 direct entry range if you are 90, generally. So, uh, huge win. Fernandez has not really been able to get it going since that Roland Garros quarterfinal. I really love watching her compete. Really love watching her compete. Um, I just think her on-court demeanor is really admirable and uh, very engaging. Uh, so I, I always kind of root for her to do well, and uh, she has not. She has not done done all that well. Uh, good to see. At the same time, whenever I've watched her, she's looked good, which is weird. Like the last time I saw her was Billie Jean King Cup. She looked really pretty great. So I don't really know what's been going on, but I know that uh, her baseline hugging can make it hard for her to withstand depth and power. I think against the big hitters, she really struggles to kind of hold her ground and absorb the pace. And I'm not I'm not completely sold on her forehand either. I think against Lynette, it was really good in that first set, but I don't think it's always that good.
day two, and I will get to some general thoughts uh, on matches that I that I didn't call, but some results and other stuff. Uh, day two started with Kristina uh, Meldenovic or Kiki Meldenovic against uh, Kayla Day. Meldenovic, of course, drawing that court assignment because she's a former quarterfinalist, uh, uh, a veteran from France. Crowd was absolutely nuts for her. Uh, I've been calling these matches on Mathieu, and there's a new thing on Simone Mathieu, uh, or I guess a new arrangement where the upper deck, the tickets at the top, they used to be ticketed seats. You had to buy a ticket to sit there. Now their general admission, grounds pass, gets you up, and it completely changes the environment. Mathieu was already one of the most beautiful, picturesque courts in all of tennis. Now that it has an environment, to me, it's vaulted to elite status. It's now one of my favorite courts in tennis. I hope I continue to uh, call matches on it the uh, rest of the week. We'll see what happens. Uh, so yeah, uh, Moldenovic coming in on, I believe it was an eight-match losing streak. Do I have my notes right here? Are these my notes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Eight-match losing streak for Maldenovich. Uh Maybe at some point during this series, I'll, I'll show you my, my match notes, like how I prepare to call a match. I don't know if you guys care about that or not. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so she was really struggling. Kayla Day, fascinating story. Uh, an American lefty, 23 years old, tore up the juniors. Like, if you look at... American tennis, uh, 12s, 14s, 16s. She was like the best junior for a long time. And she won the U.S. Open as a junior. Just didn't really translate to tour level. I mean, she had kind of a period of time in 2016 uh, into 2017 where she played a couple of majors, but always as a wild card. Uh, she had one little run at Indian Wells to the third round. Her career high was 123, and then she kind of, for the last couple of years, has you know drifted outside the top 150 and hasn't been able to get uh, to tour level whatsoever. Hasn't been able to play majors at all. Maybe qualifying, but never coming through the qualifying. So she qualifies for her first major at 23 years old and ends up winning her first completed match. The first time she played a major, U.S. Open 20, I think it was 2016. Yeah, U.S. Open 2016. She won a first-round match, but it was via retirement. So she never really won a match point at a major. And now she gets that done. First of all, great story. It's what it's all about. Love love seeing those stories all the time. But uh, there might be a little bit more brewing here with Kayla Day. And I understand that, you know, this isn't... This is one of those topics where, again, I, I would normally never talk about this, but that's what might be fun about the series is I'll get to talk about these other things. Uh, I think there might be more to this than, you know, cool story. She's 23. She finally won a match, and now she's just going to kind of go back to toiling away outside the top 100. I'm not sure that that's the case. Pat Cash is now coaching her. I found that interesting. That seems like a pretty high-profile coach for a player whose ranking was, until now, not good enough to play tour events, right? Won the biggest title of her career at the start of the month in Florida. It was a W100. In qualies, she beat uh, Alina uh, Avanisin, who just took out Belinda Bencic. 
And overall, big picture, Kayla Day has won 12 out of her last 13 matches. She's uh, got a really heavy topspin uh, forehand. And she had much better rally tolerance in this match than Moldenovic, who is obviously struggling with confidence. That's what happens when you lose eight matches in a row. Especially uh, some some faulty moments on the second serve, some faulty moments on the forehand. Actually showed, showed some flashes. I love her drop shots, but not not enough going well for her, especially in the long rallies. So yeah, Kayla Day, great story, big win. I kind of think we might be hearing more from her, honestly. Seems to be on the way up. Uh, second match I called on day two, Felix Ojealiasim, uh versus Fabio Fanini. So it's funny because I ended up getting on back-to-back -back days two men's matches that included, you know, high seeds who were not very high on on clay, who drew tough first-round opponents, at least big-name first-round opponents. So, you know, upset alerts in both cases. Hercotch passed the test. Uh, Felix, from the very start, it was rough. The first set, I think in a lot of ways, was pretty even. But holy moly, uh, the game that that Oje Aliassim ended up uh, getting his serve broken for the second time because there was an early trade of breaks in the first set. And then down the stretch of the first set, the game that uh, Fanini broke, FAA hit three double faults. He missed three second serves in a row. So it was like, here you go. Here's the break. I mean, total gift wrap, obviously. And then there was, you know, I think one great volley in there by Fanini, but it was really the three double faults. So that was kind of the difference in the first set. After the first set, I'm going to be honest, I still thought that Felix was in the match because I just felt like, okay, one really brutal game. But other than that, it, it feels like a pretty even 50-50 match. And if Felix can make some improvements, particularly on his serve, where I noticed that his first serve was very, very poor in the first set, I thought, okay, if that gets better, FAA can kind of get into this match and still win it. But in the second set, instead of things getting better, things got worse, especially physically. You started seeing Felix uh, stretch out his his hamstring over and over and over again. And his movement started to get super slow. Now, 30 minutes into the match, Felix started asking the chair umpire, who was um, Jaume Compostol, about uh, going to the bathroom. Like 30 minutes into the match. And I was like, Hmm, that's not normal. You know, 30, you're, you've, you've been out here 30 minutes and you're asking if, like, when you can go to the bathroom because I think he was like, hey, like, I have to wait between sets, right? I have to wait until the set ends because clearly he wanted to go earlier. And uh, the whatever the verdict was, I couldn't hear what Compostol said. It was like, okay, yeah, you do have to wait until the set ends. So it's like, is he feeling all right if he needs to go to the bathroom 30 minutes in? Turns out, he was not feeling all right uh, because he not only went to the bathroom after the first set, he went to the bathroom after the second set too. I think during the second set, he called the doctor on court and took some tablets. I didn't say this on air, but I did say it on Twitter after Felix lost uh, because I, I don't know. I decided it was kind of relevant uh, and, you know, a, a microphone picked it up on court. Uh, Felix had some diarrhea, uh, so he was having stomach issues and it turns out from his, so, you know, for the rest of the match, it, it was clear Felix is sick 
and his legs are having some issues. You know, I thought it, it seemed like a hamstring problem. Uh, it turns out from the post-match press conference, Felix did talk about being sick. He didn't go into the graphic detail that that I went into, uh, but he did talk about being sick, and he did tell the doctor what I just said, and uh, he was cramping. And if you lose a lot of fluid, you're gonna cramp. And if you're sick and you're having those stomach issues, that's gonna that's gonna dehydrate you. So. It all kind of creates this kind of thing where, look, I don't mean to not talk about the tennis. I don't mean to not talk about Fabio Fanini. It's a huge win for him. But especially starting from the second set onward, it was really clear like, oh, FAA is just a shell of himself. He's totally not able to compete anywhere near his level. And that is why I decided to tweet what I tweeted because I, I know that people are just going to like look at the score on their phone and just be like, Huh, like, Felix, what a mess. Horrible season, horrible performance, stinks on clay, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it has been a rough season. Yeah, I, I think he has tons of work to do on clay. But this result and this performance in particular, it's not really fair to cast too much of a judgment on it, uh, given the state, the physical state that Felix was in. I mean, he easily could have retired in this match. And I'm sure anybody who bet on him was begging that he would. Because, especially in the third set, it was just like, all right, man, you're not going to win the match. Like, this much is clear. So, what are we doing here? But he didn't want to retire, which is absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Uh, honorable in some ways, you know, especially because he knew that there was no risk of making anything worse by staying out there. Uh, I was kind of concerned at one point that he had a hamstring injury, but because it was just cramps, you know that you're not going to actually uh, hurt yourself. So uh, totally cool that FA wanted to stay out there. Um, but basically, he was serving slow. He was moving slow. You know, the service motion wasn't explosive at all. Um you know, the forehand was was pretty good in the, in the match, but that was kind of it. And Fanini was able to neutralize all of his serves and then, you know, use the ball-striking talent from the baseline. Uh, Fabio, like, Fabio looked nice. It, it feels like there's new life uh, for Fanini's season after having a really tough start to the year. Bad end to 2022. Uh, has the foot injury in Estoril. Kind of goes to the sidelines for, for a bit, and now he comes back in Rome, wins back-to-back -back matches for the first time all year, and gets this big win at Roland Garros. It's almost like the foot injury kind of revitalized him in, in a weird way. Uh, for Fanini, I do want to say, statistically, this is kind of interesting. He had never beaten a top-10 opponent at Roland Garros. He was 0-5, so first top-10 win at RG. Uh, it was his first top-10 win at a major since the 2015 U.S. Open. We, we we remember that. Down two sets to love against Nadal. Night session on Arthur Ashe. Comes all the way back. Uh, only his third career top 10 win at a major. First one was 2010 Wimbledon against Verdasco. So huge win for Fabio. 36 years old. Still doing things for the first time. You love to see it. Don't you? You love to see it. That's all I have to say about that match. Uh, okay, quick fire stuff on just a couple of other things. Um, I saw Muhova soccer yesterday. I feel like Maria got the worst draw you can get because Muhova uh, just looks awesome. 
I love everything about her game except for her topspin backhand. She has a great slice to make up for it. I think Mukova easily is the favorite. And as, as soon as she won the match, I felt this way. Easily the favorite to make the quarterfinal out of that eighth. Which just goes to show you what a bad draw that Sakari had. Because basically the winner of that match was going to go to the quarterfinal. Uh, Draper, another injury. Uh, I read what it was, but I, I'm not entirely clear. It wasn't abs, which is nice because it's been abs for him a lot. But yeah, it continues to to struggle to stay healthy. And I just wanted to throw that in there because it might be something that, that people miss. Uh, Karatsev, I didn't mention him in the preview because he hadn't qualified yet. But he is rolling. He crushed in qualifying. And he's dangerous. He beat Popperin. Very dangerous here. Svitolina might be a thing. Won a title last week. Crushed uh, semifinalist Trevisan today. I think it was 6-2, 6-2. She's looking great. That's interesting. Tsitsipas got tested by uh, by Yuri Vesely. Uh, big serve, lefty. You know, those are qualities that can bother Tsitsipas. Ultimately, I didn't see the match. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not... I'm a little bit surprised that it was that close. But... On the surprise factor, I'm probably like a 7 out of 10. Alcaraz is serving for the match right now against Kabali. I was uh, thinking about that match coming in. And I was like, hmm, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see kind of a nervous performance. This is the 8th major of Alcaraz's career. Really the first time he's come in as a, a clear favorite to win it. A bona fide favorite to win it. And I think in a first round match when he hasn't played in two weeks, hasn't, you know, felt match competition in two weeks, I was like, all right, you know, he's probably, probably going to come out here a little bit nervous. So that's what I was expecting. That's what I was gearing up for. He won the first eight games. Not that Kabali is like good competition for Alcaraz, but no nerves, not nervous. Maybe getting a little bit nervous here trying to serve out the match, but that's besides the point. Uh, Djokovic, I hear he looks good. Couldn't watch the match. Uh, beat Alex Kovacevic. Uh, went to a tiebreak in the third set. Uh, but I do want to talk about, and I'll end on this. Novak, in his uh, press conference before, and then also with his interview uh, at the Tennis Channel desk with Steve Weissman and Prakash Armitrash, he's being asked about Nadal, of course. And suddenly Novak is talking about retirement for the first time. And here's his direct quote uh, in the press conference. He said, it made me wonder about my career and how long I might play. When he announced he is going to have his last season, I felt part of me is leaving with him too. Uh, and then uh, he told Tennis Channel, he's such an integral part of my career and who I am as a player and a person. And, you know, again, he's starting to talk about, like, I don't know how many years I have left, blah, blah, blah. Like, suddenly Nadal brings up retirement and Novak is uh, on the back of that. And... It just reinforces what what I've always believed, which is that these two are just so connected. Uh, so was Federer. Uh, this is a living organism. These are three titans that have pushed each other. And when one flame goes out, the other flame dims with it. And that has always been why. You guys know this from the mailbag. I'm asked all the time about Djokovic's future. And as of late, especially, it's been it's been Gil. Is he going to win 30 majors? Is he going to win 28 majors? Is he going to right? And I'm like, whoa, cool it. I don't know if he's going to even be motivated 
to go that far. Even if he can do it, I don't know if he will do it. Even if it's in his body, I don't know if it's in his will. I don't know if it's in his heart and if it's in his mind. And again, the way these guys have pushed each other, they have all extended each other's careers. All right, this is not about Novak. This is not about Rafa. This is not about Roger. This is about all three. They have all made each other go longer. And it doesn't surprise me that with Roger gone and Rafa gone, Novak starts to think, all right, how much longer am I going to do this? Talk to you tomorrow. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.